0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast.
1: You're listening to episode 388, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. And I'm your co-host, Gemma Isroff. Emma Hyde is a senior software engineer in Boston, Massachusetts. Emma first discovered her interest in programming in 2013 and has been a software engineer since graduating from UMass Amherst in 2016. She has spent the intervening years focusing on backend and systems development. She is passionate about exposing insights at the data service layer and the processes of refactoring and optimization. She is also a huge fan of the Ruby language and has been working in Rails applications since she entered the industry. Welcome to the podcast,
2: Emma. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Rumor has it, this is your first podcast ever. Is that true? Yes, yes. I've never been on a podcast before. I have done, you know, some presentations here and there, but this is my first, my foray into podcasting. That is wonderful. Well, let's kick off this super chill, casual conversation with your developer (laughs) origin story. Yes. So I had a pretty interesting developer origin story. So I actually originally went to... UMass Amherst for psychology. I was in psych for probably two years ish, but I didn't actually get switched into the computer science major until my junior year at college. So, what kind of happened was that I wanted a Bachelor of Science degree. So, I kind of looked into what would be required for that in psychology, and it basically said, If you want a BA, you have to take a language. And if you want a BS, you have to take math. And I was like, oh, I've always hated math, but I'll look through and I'll see if there's any like easy math classes. So I looked through and there was one computer science 101. So I was like, oh, okay. You know, I've always liked computers. Like we got our first computer when I was maybe six and I've always liked video games and I've always kind of enjoyed playing around with the computer. So this seems like it's right up my alley. I'll do it. And I took that class and I was like, I like this a lot more than what I'm doing right now. (laughs) Not that I don't like psychology. It was kind of something that I was really interested in learning about, but not something that I wanted to pursue a career in. So I kind of (laughs) Ran like headfirst into that and was like, oh, okay. I think I'm going to try to start to make my way over, but uh, it might be difficult. And I started going through the motions, had to do a bunch of math, etc. It took me a long time to actually get into computer science because there was a multiple application process. But I actually did eventually get transferred in in my junior year. I had to do an extra year of college to finish up. (laughs) And I ultimately did it in about like I did the major in about three or two and a half years. So you can imagine that I had all of my gen eds done because I was like halfway through another major So it was just like four classes of computer science a semester for like two and a half years. And I did graduate in 2016, only one year late, which is, you know, that's the best thing I ever did for myself, honestly. Just acknowledging how much I really enjoy what I was doing and was excited for what that meant for me for my career. And yeah, pretty much right out of college, I got a job at Constant Contact and the rest is history. Well, I have to admit to you that
1: my mom's major was psychology and it was a real bummer growing up because she always knew exactly why I was doing something. And so I always say that developers who have a prior history, they have superpowers from it. And I imagine like psychology actually probably really helped you in many ways. But I also think it's really admirable that you figured out that that wasn't ultimately the right path for you and you corrected it earlier in life. And so you didn't even have that chance to have the second career. And so in some ways, I'm
2: very jealous that you were able to figure <laughs> that out while you were in college. I'm still kind of amazed that I was able to because that whole time in my life was kind of a mess, but I did manage to get through it. But in response to what you said, that kind of gives you that superpower. I found it really interesting that some of the things that I liked about psychology were. Also things I liked about computer science and they would seem at a surface layer to be very different. But with kind of the rise of artificial intelligence, et cetera, there's so many questions about how we might model a brain or how we might model that decision making process. And it ended up tying like quite a bit into the things that I already knew from psych. So I did end up doing kind of a focus and an independent study in AI. I don't work in AI now, but it was a really fascinating kind of project that I worked on. That project is actually on my GitHub still. It is a poetry generator where you can insert any mass of text. So you could pretty much put in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire and it would eject a poem based on the relationships between the words used in the source text. So it'll kind of associate certain words with other words more frequently, and it will kind of make a poem based on those associations. So that was really fun. That was a fun project. And it was the first thing that I had worked on in college that I was really so passionate about. And I was just so happy that I kind of got that experience and I was able to Figure out what I really wanted to do before getting out of college because it is so hard to find what you're good at and what you enjoy. I couldn't uh, agree more. Yeah. And so let's hop over to graduation.
1: So you graduate, you go to Constant Contact. Was that your first introduction to Ruby and Ruby on Rails?
2: Yes. So I, I joined the Contacts team. So we manage pretty much the Contacts platform for Constant Contact, which is basically an address book. So for our customers, any of their users, all of those contexts, that was kind of our platform. And that entire app, that entire microservice was written in Ruby on Rails. And I worked on that until late, actually pretty much 2020. So I was on that team until very recently. And that was entirely Ruby on Rails. We had a couple of Ruby on Rails microservices that... Core application was all Ruby on Rails. And I just fell in love with it. It's so easy to write in. I feel like I'm writing in English when I'm writing in Ruby. I feel like the thoughts are coming out of my brain and translated directly into Ruby syntax. (laughs) That's partly probably because of my familiarization with it over time. But I never felt that way about Java, for instance. And I worked in Java. Probably just as much. By this point, I probably do have an equal amount of practical experience in Ruby and Java. And I just love Ruby. I mean, it's so easy to write in, it's easy for people to learn, and it facilitates, I find, like a very nice team mentality. So, I've just gotten a lot out of working with Ruby. Gemma and I would definitely agree with you. You've got
1: two Ruby super fans right here. Now, I know that you recently switched jobs. And so you're working on a smaller team, but you're still working with Ruby on Rails at Dockwa. So what does the stack look like there? And really, what is the mission of that company? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So Dockwa is a marina management platform for boaters and dockmasters. So both people that own marinas, as well as people who are going to marinas. The core application is in Ruby on Rails. I mean, any time that a customer visits the website and logs in, that's all our Ruby on Rails application. We have an iOS and an Android app, and they route into the Ruby on Rails API. We have a Postgres database. We have our sidekick, background jobs, etc. cetera. We're a pretty small company. We are dedicated to getting people to spend more time outside and we support a four-day work week so that our employees can spend time enjoying where they live and be more focused and productive on our other four days on. Right now, our engineering team is pretty small. So we're around 10 people, but we're going through a bit of growth. So we've hinted around a little bit, but, you know, the reason that we invited you
1: onto the show is because of your blog post that was posted on the ReSci blog titled Ruby is Still a Diamond. I get so incredibly excited anytime I see great content coming out of the Ruby community, but I get even more excited when it's being featured in newsletters that are outside of our community, which this post was. And so first off, what inspired you to write it, Emma?
2: Yeah, I was inspired to write this because I have seen so many posts lately about how Ruby is dead. And (laughs) as a Ruby person, I found that very disheartening. I took an issue with the points brought up in those Ruby is Dead articles. They harp a lot on its performance. They kind of target Ruby for being old or past its prime. Some of them are just mean. <laughs> so my inspiration was really to give a voice to the other side of the field. I wanted to say, hey, like Ruby's not dead to a lot of us. And in fact, Ruby 3.0 is going to change Ruby. And I haven't really seen anybody talking, or I mean not anybody, but I haven't really seen many people discussing these features from Ruby 3.0 and how they will change their workflows. I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to get a conversation going. And that was really my primary goal writing the article.
1: That's so great. And let's definitely keep the conversation going. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Honey Badger. Honey Badger is one of the easiest decisions you can make. As an engineering lead on a tech stack that supports a UI, API, mobile application, and Chrome extension, it is awesome to have all of my error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and check-in monitoring in one place. No matter how great your team is, your code is going to have errors. Honey Badger empowers your whole team to own the features they ship. Honey Badger sends you alerts real time with all the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding so you can quickly fix it and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services are having issues or your background jobs go missing or silently fail. Head over to HoneyBadger.io and discover how HoneyBadger is used by tens of thousands of pragmatic developers and companies of all sizes who want to focus on shipping great error-free products. While it's so important that the listeners please pause the episode and read the article, if you haven't read it, it will be linked in the show notes. But I do want to recap a couple of things, and let's first talk about contemporary Ruby. So what has happened in the world of software development since the release of
2: Ruby 2.0? So 2.0 came out in 2013, so it's nearly a decade ago. There have been a lot of developments in Ruby in the intervening versions, but just for the Clarity of communication here. I'll talk directly comparing 2.0 to 3.0. So, since that first release of 2.0, Node.js has taken over basically. I mean, most companies are using at least one form of Node.js, and it's a massive amount of the job listings out there that I've seen. And JavaScript is just becoming far more than a front end language. It is actually quite a good backend language and node itself is just an excellent web server and it really is taking over full stack frameworks i think in a significant way where you know someone who might have used ruby five years ago would probably now say oh no there's a node.js package for that right?" Also, machine learning is a huge consideration now with lots of platforms boosting AI features, including ReSci, which is part of the context of why I wrote this. There's also been a huge surge in cloud infrastructure, so forcing people to consider compatibility with their cloud infra as a priority, that especially. I mean, for a while we were trying to write a Lambda, an AWS Lambda, and they did not actually officially support the Ruby language. So I can only imagine how many Ruby native applications implemented Node.js Lambdas for whatever they were using it for just because it was available. Also, languages that started to be developed in the last decade, more actively consider multi-threading and asynchronous offerings at the architectural level. So I think that Ruby not doing and I mean this applies to Python as well. I mean this isn't just Ruby's problem, but but there are new languages like Go and Elixir that do a better job with kind of the parallelization or concurrency questions that I discussed in this article. A lot has happened since 2.0 came out. And there is also the kind of primary goal for 3.0 that Mott's talked about was that he wanted 3.0 to be three times faster than 2.0. And personally, I think he probably did achieve that. But that Distinction, that speed increase is not going to shoot Ruby into a new performance category. It's still one of the slower languages. And what contemporary Ruby means to me isn't just that it's fast, it's that it has this increased support for multi-threading considerations, parallelization, things that cloud infrastructure, things that we work on in this decade, (laughs) things that have been really hot topics, basically.
3: There is so much in there that I want to follow up on. So I might just fire a few questions. Yeah, please. The first is, so you mentioned earlier Ruby is dead and that it has this bad reputation for performance. Its performance is slower. Why does Ruby have that bad reputation for performance? Like, Why is Ruby less performant than some of the other options you listed?
2: So, I mean, there's so many answers to that question. I think what I can speak to is why it gets a bad rap for performance and why that isn't necessarily a priority for the community. So... The language itself is more focused on ease of use and developer happiness than hitting some arbitrary performance metric. And as I said, it's never been the fastest language, but compared to other languages in 2021, it's definitely one of the slowest. I think there is an interest in, as I said, the three times faster thing. There is an interest in getting it a little bit faster than 2.0, the release of 2.0, but honestly, there have been so many minor versions in between that have incrementally increased its performance that upgrading from 2.7 to 3.0, you're not going to jump three times the speed. So I think that while that speed up has occurred, I don't think in concrete terms that upgrading to 3.0, is. it's not going to send your Ruby installation into the future. It. Doesn't really need to be the fastest language, in my opinion. Uh, I think there are a lot of applications for Ruby for like a very well thought out, easy to use, easy to learn language that is just easy to interface with for developers and is, you know, a pleasure to work in. I think that honestly does do a lot for it. I think one of the examples I can think of is that. At Reside, we were utilizing you know, machine learning in order to provide insights about a business to that business. All of that machine learning code is in Python, and due to the massive support for machine learning in Python, we also had some Scala and Node.js services, microservices that inter- interface with AWS in order to queue jobs, queue background processing of data, and... Basically, the core client application that our users actually interact with is Ruby on Rails. But what we do on the Ruby on Rails side is just pull those already calculated insights in and display them. Our performance doesn't need to be top notch for that, where we are using those recommended languages or recommended systems in order to perform those calculations. But we just need Ruby on Rails to kind of utilize their APIs and pull that info in and display it in a pleasant way. I think Ruby is an incredible choice for those client applications because of that ease of development and ease of, you know, getting started in it. Once your application is big enough to really be concerned about performance optimizations at the language level, it's kind of already your architecture that's holding you back, not the language that you're using. And I would kind of add to that that it's key to refactor potential background jobs out so that Ruby isn't front-loading all of that processing. You would want all that stuff to be constantly recalculated and centrally available anyways. So Ruby on Rails shouldn't really be doing that heavy lifting. So when developing with Ruby on Rails, I would say let Ruby on Rails focus on getting info from the DB, showing it to the consumer, and calling APIs that perform the work. It does not need to be the fastest language. And I think that Ruby gets a really critical reputation for performance, but that most of the people criticizing its performance don't actually need it to be performing like as fast as Rust, for instance. Like if a language performance is really what you want, there are other low level languages that can do a lot better. In most business cases, solving the problem first is more important than these performance optimizations. So if you can solve the problem faster in Ruby, then those kind of developer cycles are more expensive than the
3: per hour CPU costs, you know? Yeah, a lot of what you're saying there really resonates. I think I've often heard that Rails makes it simple to get something off the ground i think toby lutkov of, of shopify is famous for saying something along those lines where he could do so much developing at the start because rails made it so easy and you made a point in your article too around developers being the most expensive resource and being right, able right. to with ease of development in ruby save that time which makes a lot of sense to me so you've mentioned both within this podcast so far and on your blog post a lot around parallelism and concurrency and how those relate to Ruby 3.0, do you mind telling us a bit about all of those? So parallelism
2: and concurrency work together to make applications apparently faster. And I'll talk a little bit more about what I mean by apparently. But first, let's just kind of go over what parallelism and concurrency are. The clearest example for me is that APIs like our default concept of an api is concurrent. so if one user is waiting for a response from the server that doesn't mean other users can't request an api resource. someone might be requesting something from the api and receive a result in the time that it takes another request to just process. but all of these tasks would be managed asynchronously and picked up and put down dynamically based on the workload. an easy example is I know this is the Ruby on Rails podcast, but JavaScript's single threaded execution stack really illustrates this. If you've ever worked with promises, you understand the concept of concurrency because the promise is not executing while you're doing other stuff. At some point, you have to give that promise execution time. So you have to say like, oh, you know, wait for that to come in or it will be resolved while you're waiting on something else. It'll basically be prioritized into your thread stack, but it's not necessarily happening actually at the same time. We're able to move in between different requests based on how long a certain request is going to take to resolve. Or if we have to wait for something, then we can go do another task while we're waiting, that kind of thing. But APIs aren't necessarily parallel. They are concurrent. There are parallel APIs, but they aren't by necessity parallel. And parallelism is when you truly have simultaneous execution. So let's say you have some problem A plus B equals C. You can have one thread calculating A and another thread calculating B. And as long as your code is thread safe, then neither of those threads need to pause in order to give the other thread execution time. They are truly running in parallel. And these work together to make things apparently faster. So, just to recap, parallelism is when two processors, you know, this might be actual CPUs, work together to perform a single task. So, hey, processor A, you find out what A is. Processor B, you find out what B is. When you guys are both done, we'll add you together and we'll find out what C is. Concurrency is when a single processor is able to manage more than one task at once. So it says, I have this request coming in, but I have to wait a little while on that. So I'm going to take a couple other requests while I'm waiting and then I'll come back. It's kind of a single threaded mentality because concurrency doesn't in of itself enable multiple threads to be working at the same time. So what do I mean when I say make things apparently faster? I say apparently for a couple of reasons. So going back to the concurrency example where users can request a resource from an API while another request is pending in response. If an API was not concurrent, you would basically be in line to use the API. I mean, you'd need the first request to fully resolve before you were able to make a second request. This would make the process slower for the consumer since they'd need to wait their turn in order to request a resource, but the actual processing done would just be synchronous. You wouldn't spend more or less time on each request. It would just be that they had to be done sequentially. So supporting concurrency makes it apparently faster to the consumer, but the amount of execution time spent on these tasks doesn't change. We just kind of change when we're using that execution time. And in parallelism, you have A and B calculating simultaneously. So you get the result of C apparently faster. But the amount of time spent calculating A and calculating B is the same as if they were done sequentially. But by virtue of doing those two calculations at the same time, you only need to wait for the slowest one to complete, rather than wait for both of them sequentially.
0: Hi everyone, it's Brian, your co-host. I'd like to talk to you about something that is very near and dear to my heart, and that's the software consultancy I co-founded in 2001, Atlantis Technology. Some of the longtime listeners here may know, Mirror was born out of Atlantis back in 2006 when we figured, let's try being Ruby engineers who recruit Ruby engineers. It was a unique idea that clicked and now has become my life's work. But while I've been growing Mirror for the past 15 years, Atlantis has continued to grow as well. Atlantis still specializes in Ruby on Rails software development and collaborates on some pretty meaningful projects. Here are a couple of my favorites an interactive education tool to help elementary school students learn how to read. How cool is that, right? Second is a SaaS application for clinics and hospitals to treat patients remotely. So my point is the work we do is really meaningful and impactful to others. But the best part is the work gets done by great developers who also happen to be great people. Atlantis has always attracted egoless, empathetic engineers who love working together and we are actively seeking more remote engineers to help build a future for our clients. While I'm not doing the actual recruiting for Atlantis myself, since my time is so focused on mirror clients, it'd be my privilege to connect you with our CTO and co-founder, John Collier, who after 19 years, I still describe as one of the most relentlessly positive human beings I know. If you'd like to meet John and hear more about working at Atlantis, just drop me an email at brian at mirrorplacement.com and I'll make an intro or apply directly at atlantistech.com. We'll put a link in the show notes.
3: And how does this all relate to Ruby 3? What Ruby 3.0 offers is
2: a number of solutions to kind of these concurrency and parallelism problems. So the first that I would point out is fibers, this concept of fibers. And this is kind of Ruby's native support for promises. It's not really promises. And I really encourage people that are listening to go and look into these features because a lot of them are still experimental and they're changing every day. But the idea is that they're kind of a Ruby's native support for background job processing and... If you've used promises, they will look familiar to you, but they try to really emulate sequential execution with the least context switching possible. So they have a little bit more self-awareness than I would say that the implementation of threads or async does. They still need to be thread safe. So those considerations are still valuable but it's kind of a step in a direction of implementing concurrency support at the Ruby language level. And another item that Ruby 3.0 introduces is Ractors. So it's like actors, but with an R at the beginning, I don't know. Ractors are kind of like what I'm most excited about. I think this really has the potential to change how people use Ruby. Basically, the idea of reactors is that it is a special thread. And let's back up a little. So I do want to go over what the global interpreter lock is. Many languages implement some form of this, and it's basically a mutex lock that prevents threads from running simultaneously. And, you know, Ruby has one, CPython has one, JavaScript V8 engine has one. It's a very common implementation to avoid thread safety concerns. So just to allow people to naturally code without taking thread safety into consideration as much as possible. Unfortunately, what it does is pretty much prevent parallelism because only one thread may ever be running at the same time. And it basically forces a concurrency approach over a parallelism approach. So that's kind of been something that Ruby has struggled with for a long time because we couldn't offer parallelism while this global interpreter lock, GIL, was in effect, basically. So back to Ractors. These are basically special threads. But Threads share everything and Ractors only share some things. So most objects instantiated in a Ractor context are not shared across threads. So this prevents race conditions. Ractors have their own global lock and each Ractor has one or more threads. So you can think of it kind of as a collection of threads that have been specially identified. And threads in a Ractor context share a reactor wide global lock so that they cannot run in parallel, but threads in Ractor A can run in parallel to threads in Ractor B. So this basically circumvents the GIL in order to allow threads in certain scenarios to run in parallel. And they can communicate with each other without violating GIL constraints. So Ractors have a Q-based system for push-pull message passing, and Ractors can wait on other Ractors. So you can kind of implement further thread safety stuff, etc. But this is really big for Ruby. I mean, Ruby does not offer anything close to this at this time. Ractors are pretty much the first actual approach to tackling the GIL and how that reduces the functionality of the language. And this is kind of the first thing at the Ruby base level that will allow threads to run in parallel. And that's really huge. Threads running in parallel has never occurred across Ruby MRI since Ruby MRI was created. So it's a huge change. And I think that People really underestimate what this might do for their application. The support at the Ruby level, instead of supporting a bunch of different sidekick jobs for those things that you need to be processed in the background or whatever, putting that sidekick on a separate host so that it can do stuff while the rest of your application is doing something else, allowing these threads to actually, first of all, have self-awareness. like They know what their reactor is, what their context is. They know that they can't run with other threads in the reactor, but they can communicate with and run simultaneously with other threads outside of the reactor. And potentially two threads from different reactors could work together to solve a single problem,
3: which is the definition of parallelism. Clearly, you're tremendously well-versed on all of this. I'm curious if you have recommendations for listeners on what the best way is to follow what's happening in the Ruby community.
2: Yeah, so I linked to, in my article, uh, the Ruby blog itself is a really great resource. They also have the Ruby roadmap where you can go and check out what they're working on right now, what they expect will be in the next release of Ruby. Another thing that I would say is that Ruby on Rails has not necessarily optimized for the increases seen in Ruby 3.0 yet. So I'm kind of keeping an eye on what that relationship between Rails and Ruby looks like as 3.0 starts to mature. I'm really hoping that Ruby 3.0 is going to get adopted, but I think that it is kind of at a stance before Rails fully adopts it because so many people that use ruby are using it with ruby on rails and i think that full integration between those two services kind of will really facilitate people actually starting to dive in to some of these upgrade benefits it's important that we all know how to follow ruby and rails but you know Emma
1: how can the listeners follow you
2: so this is the hardest question you asked me i've spent the last week thinking about how listeners can follow me i would say the two best ways are following me on medium so you can follow me through the article that i posted any other articles i post i will post them there but this was actually my debut article so you will not find a backlog there and in terms of just like just personal stuff i do have a twitter with no posts So maybe I will start. I've been thinking about, you know, I should develop an online presence. So I think I'll start to try to keep up with that. (laughs) And you can go ahead and follow me on Twitter at Emma Hyde. Maybe I'll just blossom into a Twitter baby, but we'll have to see. I love that so much. (laughs) You can already
1: count Gemma and I in as readers number one and two. So thank you so much for putting out just a fantastic blog post that made it so welcoming for other software communities to understand all the advancements that have come from Ruby and really putting it in a great centralized place. And so thank you so much for that. And we're excited to see where your career takes you. Thank Thank you, you. Emma.
0: You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please
3: leave us a review and thank you for listening.